Yay for pizza. Yay for pizza. I love a good old-fashioned pizza in the late 24th century. And um, I hope each and every one of you do too. Um, and maybe even after this episode, I'll get some pizza. Do you want pizza, Eric? Pizza is timeless, just like some things are timeless. And I think I want some pizza too. So, wait, wait, hold on. Was there pizza in the episode Timeless of Voyager? Because I don't remember that. Because pizza is timeless. Or is the episode named Pizza? Is that what they're really trying to say? There, like, timeless equals pizza? No, pizza equals timeless. Oh, okay. Right? <laughs> but there is no pizza in episode Timeless. No. Well, that is very unfortunate. Well, hey, it is very unfortunate. Well, hey, guys. That would even make that episode more perfect. <laughs> we just need a good old-fashioned pizza, and this would be a perfect episode. Yeah, it's already perfect, but it would Basically. be more perfect. More right? perfecter. More perfecter, More yes. perfecter. I believe that is perfect English grammar. It's perfection. It's perfection. All right, and speaking of perfection, we're going to talk about an amazing episode today on this uh, this round of Engage. So, uh, again, I'm the captain. I'm Captain Chase McKinney. I'm so happy to have each and every one of you listening as we ramble on about pizza and pizza being timeless and perfection. And just like this, this episode was pretty dang perfect. So, uh, yeah. We got the command holy in the house, too. Bunny cor- holy bunny corn sausage, right? Yes. yes. This episode was good. Holy bunny sausage. <laughs> you know, yeah. I wonder what would happen. I, I know they said in the episode, but, like, I wonder what it would legitimately look like if if the venom sack was not cut out. Besides, like, you would, the... You would spew black bile from all your orifices. Yeah. Ooh. That's, that's, that's not a pretty picture, is it? <laughs> no. That reminds me of some sometimes at summer camp, actually. Oh, <laughs> uh, let's not talk about that, gang. All right. Yeah, so let's not talk about that. You guys know how this thing works. You know, or at least most of you probably do by now. Uh, we watch the episode a gazillion times, and then we talk about it for a gazillion and a half hours. Um, in the time that it takes for us to go through one episode, you could watch it one, two, three, four thousand times. And uh, anyways, uh, in all seriousness, though, we're going to be talking about Star Trek Picard Episode 7 Nepenthe today. And I don't know about you, Eric, but I love the mess out of this episode. And I had a lot of feels going on watching this. Oh, yeah. I really like this episode. Um a whole heck of a lot and definitely right in the feels yeah straight up in the feels and you know the the i don't even know where to start i mean we can certainly start at the beginning but there's just there's so much good to this episode and there's like maybe one or two slow parts in my opinion in this entire episode but by and large this this is a very strong episode and i'm hoping most of you enjoyed it if you didn't that's fine too uh, but we should probably talk about it uh, since we're starting to talk about it. Yeah, so um, I, let's start with the beginning. Let's just jump right into it. Um, this beginning scene totally makes me feel vindicated for everything I said three or four weeks ago. <laughs> Which part? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, okay, so... Um, we open up with this flashback. It's Gerardi and Commodore O. They're 
hanging out at the Daystrom Institute. With her crooked Commodore rank pip. It, it is crooked. I didn't notice that the first time, but I definitely saw it now. And I remember you said vindicated. that. Yeah, okay, good. We're both vindicated. So, um, we had just seen like a brief moment of this conversation earlier, and then immediately we cut to this Romulan assault on Chateau Picard. And then in comes Dr. Gerardi right at the end of it and kills the last Romulan and says, I have to go on this mission with you. And I said, I don't feel like the assault on Chateau Picard was supposed to succeed. I felt like that was a suicide mission. And the whole purpose of it was for them to gain Dr. Gerardi's trust because something happened in that conversation that we didn't see. Uh, and I, I specifically said... Did they do a mind meld to do mind control? Did they put a tracking device on her? And lo and behold, both of those things happened. So I want to talk about that tracking device for just a second. Okay. I mean, I know we got we got the the what should we call it the the reveal of like you know how it works and what you got to do and stuff like that. But whenever the Commodore was holding her hand out, and you have like this triangular thingy thing, I'm like. What's going on with this? Like, this looks like the earpiece that Narek and, you know, Cersei are wearing in their ear. Like, that's... I, I literally thought that's what it was, like... Yeah, okay. a little bit, I can see that. I'm just reminded, because it was kind of blue, so it's like, in the Matrix, take this blue pill, which is, like, part of their tracking program. Oh. <laughs> I was watching a, um, a couple different... YouTube videos like throughout this week and I think part of last week and that how and I'm not trashing the show or anything like that please let's leave that part alone but how Alex Kurtzman make uh, has really borrowed a lot of stuff from a lot of franchises over over time and like what he's he's done um, you know like with with like the mate like he's borrowed stuff from the Matrix um, you know stuff like even stuff like from Discovery, um, like Iron Man, which is pretty obvious with the Red, Red Angel suit and things like that. Uh, Two Thousand One: A Space Oddity, things like that. So it, it doesn't surprise me with what you're saying in this comparison that you're making with the Blue Pill and the Matrix, with this being a Kurtzman, you know, project basically. Yeah. Anyway, like I didn't even think about that. All of those things that were taken from there, but what we do notice is that this this mind meld, these visions that Commodore O shows Dr. Gerardi are essentially reused scenes from the vision that Spock had in season two of Discovery. Yeah. Right? And and I think it's pretty obvious now that there's some connection between between control, the AI in season two of Discovery and what's happening here. It's pretty obvious that they're connected. Yeah, and and one thing that I mentioned early on was uh, when we were talking about Dodge and I think it was our first episode, maybe it was our second episode of Engage, when I was talking about the name meanings and like Dodge meant gift of God or gift from God or something like that and Soji was general minister and you know we've, we've heard Ramda who was the, the Romulan playing with her tarot cards or whatever she was doing that she called Soji the destroyer 
and we're getting these concentric circles like with the you know the necklace that she wears we're seeing the seeing it like here and there throughout the show so far and if there is in fact a connection to control which i hope there isn't but it's seeming like it's going to be i'm wondering if the name soji was chosen specifically to have a loose enough meaning to where it's not noticed immediately but that general minister is control like it's just another way of saying control so just something i was thinking of like as we have been getting up to this episode basically that is a really interesting thought um and i can definitely see that how control and general administrator could be translated from the same word in different context yeah that's a really well thought out point so we'll see. I mean, she's. We just found out in the last episode. I mean, we haven't even talked about her in this episode yet. But she's becoming aware that she's this sentient, artificial person. She's this sentient android. And who knows what that's going to be, what that's going to look like. And, you know, to, to what you were just saying about this mind meld that we see. Or, or we're, we're about to see and talk about, you know, with with Commodore O and, and Jurati, you know, that's what's going to happen if synths do their thing, basically. So Yeah, and I think next week's episode, I would guess, just from looking at the little preview at the end of this episode, my guess is next week's episode starts with a flashback and we see more of these scenes, right? There's that... Like that scene where all the people are standing in a circle, right? That's my guess is what how next week's episode is going to start. So we in uh, Start a City Rag, we met uh, Rafi's son. And he was calling Rafi out on like these different like conspiracy theory type of things. And he mentions this thing called the Conclave of Eight. Right. Were there eight people standing in that circle? I was I was trying so hard to get as as clear of a pause as possible. Right. It's about eight. Okay. Well, I said when we saw that scene that I hope the purpose of it was not just to um, have Rafi be even more of a broken character, but that there was some real purpose to it, and maybe that purpose was this conclave of eight. Right. And 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 Rafi is this. She's the, she's the SME, right? She's the subject matter expert when it comes to Romulans, more or less. I mean, that's how they're depicting her. Who's, so, who's SME? SME, subject matter expert. Oh, okay. It's just an abbreviation. Okay, yeah. all right. I thought it was supposed to be a person that you were referencing. No, not not Captain Hook's um, blundering. Yeah, that's what I thought. Right and hand. I was like, what does that have anything to do with this? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like she's the subject matter expert where is how she's being portrayed when it comes to the Romulans. So it would make sense that she would know about this conclave of eight and this Romulan, you know, mythos and lore and blah, blah, blah. And to, to be able to talk talk about this conclave of eight with some kind of authority, basically, which would in turn make her seem crazy, which is how they're kind of trying to portray her in a way with her family. Yeah, but it's interesting, like, Commodore O, I thought that maybe she was a Romulan in disguise, but she's clearly not. She's clearly a Vulcan here, because Romulans can't mind meld. See, that's what I was thinking, too, and, like, I was I was asking myself, and I was asking some 
some other Trek friends of mine, like, when when did Romulans learn to mind meld? As far as I know, they can't. And here's the thing, like, there's one of two things that's happening, okay? And I'm inclined to go with your with your side, Eric, that she is in fact a Vulcan. So one, she's either a Vulcan, okay, or she is a Romulan, and the writers just made an uh oh. I hope the writers didn't just make an uh oh. I'm right there with you. I mean, the writers have been known to make uh ohs before. Pretty big. This is true. Pretty pretty big ones, in my opinion, as well. And I right, think it, it, and I think this would be a pretty big uh oh. Yeah, and there's there's not enough time that's that's elapsed between the Great Awakening, with Vulcans and Romulans when the Romulans left, and parted from Vulcan society. Right, like there hasn't been enough time for that to happen, for them to you know be able to do their own mind meld, more or less. So. There, there's just not enough time, period, right. for that to have happened. So she has to be a Vulcan that just somehow drank the Kool-Aid to be, like, really on the up and up and really hanging out with the Jatvash. Yeah, but if the Jatvash is such a deeply guarded thousand-year-old secret, why would they tell an outsider? I, I have no idea. Unless she's like a double, triple, quadruple agent of some kind. Some kind? I hope we get the answer. I mean, I don't mind Commodore O. I don't mind it, her either. It'd be, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm actually intrigued by her, and I, I just want to see where she's going and what they do with her. Because if they just are making, if they're gonna make her out to be like a double, triple, quadruple agent, I'm like, there better be a really good reason for that. Yeah, there better be. Anyway. Yeah. So. So we, we see we see Gerardi puke and say, you know, what do you need me to do, basically? And then we go over to the board cube, and there we are. Yeah, and um, this is a touching scene here um, because we saw last week, we were, like, gushing over Hugh last week and how all the good work Hugh was doing with helping these XBs and restoring their humanity right they're not humans but restoring their humanity and to see these xbs that he's put all this time and effort into just gunned down senselessly in front of him is really tragic yeah i really like the resolve that he had when nerissa was was saying don't tell me you don't know where they went and he starts to say and then he just shuts up and i thought that was that was great and just how how the rest of it played out uh, it was it was heartbreaking just seeing them just like you said senselessly murdered in front of him yeah i'm bored kill them all yeah right like there's no way that nerissa cersei lannister here makes it out alive right I mean, you never know. I mean, Cersei Lannister made it out alive, you know, so the, for most of Thrones. Yeah, spoiler alert. But um, there's no way this character survives the end of this season. Like, she has to get her comeuppance. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And we're all going to, like, go, yeah, when, she, when it happens, aren't we? And then season two, we're going to find out that she was a genetically altered Vorta. And that there's clones of her. 
yeah, please no, right? Like, like <laughs> death should have some meaning, okay? Death shouldn't just be used as a plot device, in my opinion. And I feel like Discovery, like, I don't, this is not a Discovery podcast right here, and I don't want to get too spoilery into Discovery, but Discovery used death as a plot device, and they awkwardly and somewhat unnecessarily brought characters back. And I really don't want that to happen here. Yeah. I see what you mean. And yeah, you're right. I mean, Discovery certainly does that. And you were also saying in a variety of episodes that there's there's not as enough value on life in in these episodes. If I remember you saying that. Yeah, I, I've said that. And just like this senseless killing, like, you know, whether it's just like, let's kill for the fun of it or let's you know, kill or harm someone so we can achieve a means. Anyway, I don't even know where I was going with that, other than it, there's just not enough value on it, basically. I guess that's what I was getting at, so. Right. I'll shut up. Yeah. So, basically, um, Hughes had all these XBs murdered in front of him, but Nerissa can't kill Hugh because he's protected by the Federation. And then... Narek gets in his little shippy ship and uh, follows the la- follows the La Serena. And I'm so glad that Narek had nothing to do this episode but just sit in his ship. With his fidget spinner? Right, with his fidget spinner. He was just sitting there and it's like, you have nothing to do. Good for you because none of us like you. You're a terrible character. Okay, can I talk about Narek for just a second, like with how he was in this episode? I think this is all we need, really need to talk about with okay. Narek, honestly. Okay, all right, let's do it. So, I felt like with how he was in this episode, it was like I was at Meyer, like at a Meyer grocery store. Mm-hmm. For those of you that aren't from the Midwest, Meyer is like a Walmart, basically. Right, it's like, it's like the Publix of Michigan, Ohio, Indiana. So it's like I was at Meyer, and you know, like, right near the the checkout, there's like the pony ride for a penny, and there's like a rocket ship for like a penny. Yeah. Okay, I felt like that's what it was. Like he's just holding onto his joystick, and he was on like a penny ride, playing with his <laughs> fidget spinner. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you can't unsee it. Yep. Now. Nope. Nope. <laughs> and uh, that's all. That's all we're gonna talk about Narek in this episode. We're never gonna mention him again. Yeah, he tries following people around, and and then he fails yeah. for reasons, and that's yeah, it. Yeah, that's it. Yep. Like, legitimately, that's yep. it. All right. Cue the opening music. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, and now we get to the good stuff. The good stuff, right? All the good stuff. All the good stuff. So they, so Picard and Soji, they they come forth from the Stargate. Um, <laughs> on <laughs> oh, they did. They stepped through the Stargate, and they're on P three X Z two three. I mean, they're on Nepenthe. P two X seven eight four, right? Yeah, that's the one. Right. Yeah, you know, one of those one of those planets. Because it's not a moon; it's a planet, so it has to be a P. Yeah. 
and um okay okay so let's talk about this name like the names here i think of these planets have been not just names that they've come up with like as just oh we got to come up with a name but i think all the names tried to mean something right so mm -hmm. in uh the beginning of stardust city rag we saw the planet was called vergessen right which in german mm -hmm. kind of means to forget or in that context the forgotten and here this world called nepenthe right and i looked this up and apparently nepenthe is a drug from the odyssey it's supposed yes. to like banish grief or trouble from people's minds yes i was actually going to bring this okay. up myself yeah and i think that's really interesting and um if you watch the ready room for this episode which I would highly recommend you watch The Ready Room for this episode. It's got uh, Jonathan Frakes and Brent Spiner talking with Will Wheaton, and it's just a really good interview. But there's a scene where I think it's Michael Shabon who brings it up. Might be Akiva Goldsman, I'm not sure, who brings up yeah. that Nepenthe and this idea that they thought about this name, and it was really important. Yeah, because, like, we find out that, and I might jump around a little bit, but, like, we, we find out as we are hanging out on Nepenthe that, you know, William T. Riker and Deanna Troy, who have remained married for, you know, the last 17, 18 years or so, 20 years, whatever it's been, yeah, 20 years, yeah, it's 2399, 20 years, that they've had two children up to this point. Yep. You okay? I am totally fine. All right. Yay for mute buttons. Okay. And part of the reason that they're on this planet, which I originally thought was Alaska, which would have made sense because they were married in Alaska in Nemesis, and that's where Riker's from. And this scene is like all outdoorsy. It's a very wild, very wild area that they live in. Log cabin style very, house. Very beautiful too. planet. This is someplace you definitely want to live. It's like Risa, but Without, without all the tourists. Yes. Or naked women. Yes. Well, we but don't we know don't that, know I guess. That, right? No Horgons, though. <laughs> There's probably still a few in the house, though. <laughs> I bet he's got his. Yeah, he's probably got a whole, like, trophy room dedicated to Horgons. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But we find out that they've had two children together. And... Uh, the, they had a, their firstborn was a son named Thaddeus, and their they had a daughter named Kestra, and both of those names have some significance to both of them. Yeah. So like when I heard this name Kestra, like it sounded familiar to me. I was like, I know this name is familiar. It's not just a a name, but I could not place it right away, and I feel like. Like, I should have been able to, but I couldn't. So where did this name Kestra come from? Dark Page. Yeah, yeah. The episode Dark Page where uh, Luoxana had hidden from Deanna that she had a late older sister who died of drowning. Yeah, and that's why Luoxana always calls Deanna Troy little one. Yeah. Right, because she was her little child. Yes. Okay, yeah. And this was more or less an opportunity for, you know, Deanna's sister's memory to carry on, more or less, was through the naming of her 
of her daughter, uh, Kestra. Now, this other one, you, you'll be able to speak with a little bit more authority on this one, Eric, but Thaddeus was a name of one of Riker's uh, 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 ancestors. Yeah, like his great-great-great-grandfather. From the Civil War. Fought in the Civil War for the Union. And um, and this was actually mentioned in an episode of Star Trek Voyager where uh, Riker's actually brought aboard uh, Star Trek aboard the USS Voyager, and I believe Q yeah. and another Q make a, an appearance as yeah, well. Yeah, it's an episode called Death Wish. It's from season two, I believe, where uh, one Q shows up, and then, like, Q shows up, and then he... There's some incident, and anyway, Riker gets brought on board, Q snaps his fingers, and there's Riker. Yeah, it's a good episode, really good episode of Voyager. See, I knew I could count on you to get the name just yeah, right. Yep. Um. Anyway, so they they they've stepped through the Stargate. They uh, they have their hands up because Kestra is being this Vivine, this wild girl of the woods, hunting her her bunny corn, and she happens upon Soji and Jean Luc Picard, and Soji's freaking out like I thought this was a safe planet. Like I don't know, Kestra. Is he's it? Like, oh, he's and safe, he's like, yeah. you better aim at my head. My heart is made of solid duritanium. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so listen. Last week's episode reminded us all of the best of both worlds, one and two, right? Picard yeah. on the board cube, and immediately following that episode is an episode called Family, which we both love, right? In our best of Picard, we both had it in our top ten. True story. Um, It's a fantastic episode. Right, This quiet, reflective episode that happens after this dramatic incident with the Borg. And this episode is totally inspired by that episode, Family. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't honestly thinking of that, but now that you mention it, yeah, I'm on board with right. that. For I sure. mean, when Picard shows up to um, his brother's vineyard, which is Chateau Picard that we've seen here, he's walking along the road, and his nephew Rene comes up and points like a gun at him, as like a highway robber. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. Eric. So this Good episode job, is totally inspired by that episode. Right, yeah. this quiet, contemplative, reflective episode where we have to, you know, work through our problems that we've just encountered. Yeah. Dang. I'm surprised that didn't you didn't you didn't come up with that. I don't know why I didn't I don't know why I didn't think of that. Hey, you know what? I brought up the whole Soji name thing, okay? So I get a pass for okay, this episode. Okay, all right. That's fine. <laughs> you can't be brilliant all the time. You know? Really? I mean, maybe you can, but I choose not to. Okay, fair. I don't. I don't want people to think too highly of me. You know what I'm saying? Okay, fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, like this this whole thing of them like walking the road again. I guess like you're saying that's family. Like Renee's walking the road with him yep. in in family, and now walking the and now. You know, Kestra's walking the road with them, going back to the house, and let me. We're we're at this part. Do we do we need to talk about anything yes, on the road at all? Yes, or we no? do. Yes, we do. 
Okay. okay. So, so Kestra is asking a lot of questions, and this whole episode, um, it's very talk-heavy, isn't it? It's very talk-heavy? I would say and, so. Um, this scene on the road is really important because there's a lot of exposition that happens here. And there's a lot of exposition that's happened in this show. And I feel like the exposition has been handled in a kind of a poor way in some instances. Like, the um, in episode one, we had the, the interview, right? I don't feel like that was the greatest w exposition. We had the meeting with Gerardi at the, at the Daystrom Institute, right? Which I don't think was done very well. Right, yeah. we had I had a lot of really not so great exposition sequences, but this this is fantastic. Okay, we see everything comes out of this just inquisitive child who just wants to know everything, and and you have you have a child, and I'm assuming that you see that she's inquisitive and just wants to know things. Yeah. Right, and we just see that here, and she's just like so excited, and she's just asking all these questions. And she's like, who is who is her father? And he goes, well, I'm assuming you've heard of Commander Data. And she's like, you're an android? And there's, like, excitement there. She's not even thinking mm -hmm. about um, what saying that, how that would make Soji respond. Absolutely not, yeah. Like, it's just, like, total excitement. You're an android? Oh, my God! Calm down, Soji. Yeah. Calm down. And, and it's interesting because... When Picard meets Dodge and and Dodge is starting to real and Picard has figured out who she is and they're sitting outside the archives and Dodge is like, You're telling me I'm not real and Picard's like, That's not what I'm telling you at all. I'm telling you that you are very real and that you were made from love and she tells this memory about her father splicing these plants together and naming them after her and he's like that's a beautiful memory, and it's yours. No one can take it away from you, and all of your memories are real. And then there's just this compassion and understanding there that for some reason I feel is lacking right here. And he says, oh, calm down, calm down, but I just don't feel like he's being as compassionate now as he was to Dodge. And maybe that's just because they've been through this... this um, violent encounter on the board cube and he's not in the right frame of mind but I just I just it strikes me as a weird um, difference between those two scenes that's interesting yeah and I think part of it is perhaps you know Picard had that positive experience with Dodge but with, with Soji there's this this lack of trust so there might be this transference countertransference type of thing going on with him with like well she doesn't want me to trust her or she doesn't feel like I can be trusted so I mean that might be impacting him in, in some way in how he's interacting with her which is kind of uncharacteristic of of Jean-Luc in general because he's just he's got the the high high moral ground that very high moral compass about him in how he treats people and works with people so yeah, but I think I think he kind of redeems that in a way as we move through this episode though. Oh yeah, so absolutely. So this was just kind of this was just like one of those awkward moments where it's like, "Meh, 
kind of thing. Yeah, but and I guess you're kind of right because Dodge came to Picard looking for help, and she was the one who trusted Picard. And now it's the other way around. Is like Picard has been so obsessed with finding Soji here, right? And that he's been so obsessed with finding her. I don't know if he actually thought about what would happen when he did find her. Right, and the same thing with Austin Powers. I mean, Austin Powers has been trying to find Soji and break Soji and get to know Soji and take advantage of Soji this entire time. So these two men that she doesn't know are highly interested in her, and the first one that she thought she could trust, that proved to be a complete lie, and you know Austin Powers totally took advantage of her straight up yeah and she's not and she's not sure if if this is going to happen if this is a pattern that's going to continue for her with picard or anyone else that she right meets. and and i know this is jumping ahead but there's that just fantastic scene with soji and deanna troy deanna troy Riker, whatever i don't know she kept they kept referring to her as troy in this episode and and i think you know, I've always referred to her as Deanna Riker ever since then. But anyway, that's beside the point. There's this beautiful scene where they're in the garden talking, right? And this is jumping way far ahead. And and Deanna Troy's doing her best counselor role. And Soji says, this way that you're being right now, all caring and trusting, it's really making me trust you even less because... I can't under I don't even know if any of this is real, if any of this is really happening, because I've just put all my trust into somebody who I thought cared about me, and they were just trying to use me and take advantage of me and tried to kill me. And I have no idea what's happening. I'm so confused right now. Yeah. Uh, just a fantastic scene right there. And that's something that I see I don't want to say all too often, but I just I see it regularly with like the the marriage and couples counseling that I do in real life is you know people they 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 get the warm warm fuzzy tinglys about one another and then they want to just rush into the relationship get engaged get married and then do whatever after that and they haven't taken the time to get to know each other before making this long-term commitment I'm not I'm by no means saying that they're gonna get married I'm not saying that at all I'm just saying that like what I see is there hasn't been this trust and like they think that they know the person that they're marrying and what ends up happening not all the time but just the people I work with that they get taken advantage of they don't they don't you know respect themselves like with their own boundaries and their relationships and that's why they're like trying to figure out how to get out because they're in an abusive situation or they feel like they're being manipulated or whatever it might be and trigger warning for any of you guys that are listening i'm sorry if, if i triggered y'all in any way that's not my intent but that's just kind of like the comparison that i'm kind of drawing with what what's going on with with soji and what she's talking about with deanna at this point so think, sorry that was that was off the reservation a little bit no i think that is perfect because i've i'll said it say it a thousand times a million times good science fiction and star trek does this well tries to present real situations things that we can mirror in our own society and this is one of those moments yeah and it's not even just marriage it's it's just any relationship for that matter i mean i was in a god-awful 
relationship in college. And thank God I didn't marry that person. I'm so happy I didn't marry that person. But that's that's not for, for this show, but like it really jumped jumped off off the screen to me whenever that interaction specifically was happening. So let's talk about some happier let's times. Let's talk about some happier times. Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> we we walk up to this cabin, we see Deanna Troy. Like and I'm just gonna say this, like Marina Sirtis is looking really good here. Like Yeah. Like this woman, damn. She looks, she, no, like, I never, like, like, I never really thought of her as, like, obviously she's a good-looking woman, but I never really, you know, that was never really, like, something that, like, jumped out at me, but I'm looking at her here now, and she's, like, a really old, mature, it's not old, but she's mature, and she's just, she's looking good here in this episode. Yeah, I, I know I joked about Stargate earlier, and, and, you know, them stepping through the Stargate, but... You know, Marina Sirtis was in uh, at least one or two episodes of Stargate. I'm pretty sure it was just the one. She played a uh, a Russian scientist in the Russian science Russian Stargate program. And no one judged me, but I didn't think she looked that good. Like I, I knew that there had been time that had passed from, you know, the end of the the next gen movies and stuff like that to when she was on it, but. I was like, okay. And maybe part of that was just makeup, but she looked really good, really good in this episode from like her appearance in that episode of Stargate to now. Yeah, she looks really good. Like, yeah. <laughs> so just seeing her walk out of the house to do something with the plants, seeing Jean-Luc and like just going up and hugging him, like, there were I'm not I'm not even ashamed of this man. Like there were at least two, maybe three times in this episode that I wept tears of joy and that was one of them. Oh yeah, this is like this is like butterflies in your stomach stuff. Yes. Yes, and, and it was it was such a beautiful moment just seeing them just hug and like talk and embrace just in that moment. And I'm like I'm home now. Everything's going to be okay. Right. Like, that was me. I'm not even talking about Picard. That was me. I'm home now. Everything's going to be okay. Right. And then then when um, we go into the kitchen and Riker's cooking and he's playing jazz music and Kester yells, it's Jean-Luc Picard. He's like, wait, what? And he looks out the window and he doesn't see him. And then you hear, hello, Will. And like, oh man! Yeah, and then so good to see. But, but it's it's so this the scene is so it's so interesting in so many ways because he's had this embrace with Deanna, and then he comes inside and he has this embrace with with Will, and then all of a sudden Will pulls back and he stands up and he's like, "You're looking for someplace to hide." Shields up with that like commanding presence that he has. If you close your eyes, and I did this. If you close your eyes whenever he says that, you legit think you're back on the Enterprise. Oh, yeah, yeah. That same commanding presence when he's just, like, they're in a tough situation and he just is, like, takes over. Doesn't take over, but he steps up. Is maybe the, Yeah, maybe the, I mean, he's Captain Riker again. I mean, Right, but, but did you notice later in this episode Picard refers to him as Commander Riker? 
Yeah, I didn't like yeah, that. Yeah, I thought I didn't think you were. Like he's a captain for crying. And out they loud. keep refer and Kester keeps referring to him as Captain Picard. Right. And I guess I kinda understand that one, but the fact that Picard would refer to Riker as Commander Riker, I don't really like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, Picard didn't even become an admiral until 2381, which is 18 years prior to this. And anyway, so she would have never known him as a captain. Right. That that but, much is but obvious. But I mean, the stories that her parents would have told. Yeah. Okay. But but I just I just love that scene when he gets this hug from Riker, and then he just like shields up, and it's just oh oh so many so many feels here. And it wasn't just like the hug too. I mean, like, did you pay attention to how Riker looked at, looked at Picard? Like, it was just like no homo or anything, but it was just this very tender, like, embrace and gaze that that was that was taking place between Riker and Picard. And and then, like you said, like he he like completely flips and like goes into you know captain mode you know commander of a, of a starship mode yeah yeah really good and and one of the things that i love about this episode is that we've seen star trek picard present this universe that is broken right everybody in this universe is broken right the federation is broken starfleet is broken the romulan empire is broken picard is broken rafi is broken Chris Rios is broken. Gerardi is broken. Everyone's broken, right? And everyone blames Picard for ruining their life, essentially. Right? Admiral Clancy basically blames Picard for all the things that have gone wrong, and she has... She just hates the fact that she even has to sit in the same room with him. And Rafi blamed Picard for everything that's wrong with her life and she wanted nothing to do with him at first and Chris Rios even really didn't want anything to do with him at first and then Elnor blamed him for everything that was wrong in her life in his life but then we're seeing to see Will and Deanna Riker here they're not broken they're a happy couple and their life is good I mean yes they've lost a son and they've been through this tragedy but they're they're learning to live with it, I guess. I don't know if you can ever really live with something like that. But they're they're moving past it, maybe. And they have this good life. And they're so happy to see him, to see Picard. And I just Star Trek is always supposed to have been optimistic. And this is that optimism right here. And it's in such stark contrast to everything that we have seen up until this point. Yeah, I would say, like, to your point, yeah, like, there is this this optimism that is, like, really just oozing and gushing specifically in this episode, but I think that you really, you start to get a hint, you get, like, a little appetizer of it in the impossible box with the interaction between Hugh and Picard, but then it's just, like, it goes from, like, like a 1 to cranked up to 11, you know, yeah, they definitely with, they definitely cranked it up. Yeah. So yeah, it it was great. Like again, there's another person or persons that don't hate Picard and don't blame him for everything. Yeah. Right. 
and even even talking about like what was going on with that with Thaddeus, their their firstborn son, that this is what was going on. Like there's this you know this disease, and had had the research not been halted, there could have been a cure. And part of the reason we came here was there was like this regenerative you know healing aspect of this planet that we thought could have done it. It didn't, but yet we're healing. And that was, again, back to what you're saying, like with the the naming of the planet and like why it was so important for this planet to be called Nepenthe is there's there's trying to be this elimination, this taking away of sorrow, which is what we see. I believe it was in the Odyssey is where this was, this was stated, Nepenthe. So if you've never read the Odyssey, I highly recommend it. It's a very old, old, old story that probably everyone's read like in freshman English. I know I yeah, did. Yeah, that's where most people read it. Yeah. So <clears throat> anyways, just... Just good, good stuff, good stuff, and so can we, let's talk about Thaddeus for just a second. Sure. This dude, sure. total nerd. I love this kid. I would love to hang out with Thaddeus. Oh yeah, well he might be he might be one of those like pretentious know it alls though. But maybe. Maybe. I mean, I mean he's the son of Riker and Troy for crying yeah, out loud. Yeah, but I mean, what did he invent? How many languages did he invent? Eighteen. Uh, it was 12, 12, 13 if you count the last one. Okay, the butterfly flapping. Yeah, language. Yeah. I would love to meet this kid. I mean, if he were, if if Memory Alpha, you know, like the Wikipedia page were a thing, then he would probably be the one that would be like updating the Wikipedia like regularly. <laughs> that That's probably the kind of person that he would be. Yeah, he does seem like a really, really wise kid um like the idea i mean i'm gonna go back to this scene with deanna troy in the garden because i think it's just really brilliant here when she talks about how thad grew up on starships and he was fascinated that people had home worlds and so he wanted to create his own like what kid thinks like that right right that is like such an adult idea. Like wanting a home, wanting some I guess that is kind of a kid's idea too. And but you mostly see that from kids who have come from broken homes, right? And that's not where where Thad came from. No, no, he very much had a very happy home. And yeah. I'm just did I hear it right that he had created all these Starting around, like, what, age five or something Yeah, like there's that? that moment when Picard says, the first time I met Thad, he was speaking in some invented language, and he was only five, right? And then Deanna Troy says, that was actually the second time you met him, and she holds up that baby picture. Yeah. Yeah. It looked like like he was wearing, like, a little... A little uniform. Starfleet a little uniform. uniform. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you get, like, a little onesie for your for your kid, and <laughs> you, they probably have those in real life right now. I want one. I, you never had one for your daughter? Like, a little Star Trek onesie? Mm, no. No? No. Did, your, okay, your, did I ever, your next kid? Yes. D- okay, so this, is, this feels like an appropriate time to talk about this. So at one point, by the way, this isn't going to happen. Like if we have a son, at one point I wanted to have, um, if we had a son, I wanted to name him uh, Chase. You know, him be the second, not Junior, just the second. Okay. And what I wanted to do is with 
a baby boy being bald and everything, I wanted to put him in a Captain Picard outfit <laughs> and have a and have a, a, a like a board hanging around his neck that that's like pointing to me that says "Make it so, number one." <laughs> That is so awesome. You need to do that. (laughs) So, does your wife disapprove of that? Is that why you're not going to do it? No, no, no. She's 100% on board with it, actually. What's the why? Why not do it? Well, it's the no to like naming him the second. I don't want Chase the second. So, anymore. (laughs) Anyway. But yeah, like I've had that idea for a long time. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so this is this is their their oldest child. Can we talk about their youngest child, Kestra? Like, can we please talk about Kestra, who is like my favorite, my her? favorite character, right? Other than uh, yeah. other than obviously Picard, right? Yeah. Oh my God, this kid is brilliant, right? She is us, right? She is supposed to be the audience, right? Inquisitive. She wants to know everything. And she just has all of these nostalgic feelings for Star Trek The Next Generation. That all of these stories that her parents have told her. And she just wants to know everything. And we want to know everything. And I love that scene where where she's... Dodge, not Dodge. Soji is taking a shower. And she's like, can you play the violin? Do you like Sherlock Holmes? Can you run really fast, jump really fast, and bend, bend things? It's like, well, I, apparently I can. And it's like I just want to know everything. <laughs> and then and then she starts asking like the really random questions like, "Do you have mucus?" Do you have saliva? <laughs> like, yeah, I do. <laughs> and it's like it's like in Kestra's mind, the the Starfleet is this perfect organization, right? And that in yeah. our mind, Starfleet is this perfect is. organization because. All of the stories that she've heard have been nothing but Starfleet and the Federation is this force for good. And that's all she knows. And so she just she just is so inquisitive here. And I just love it. And it's this mind of a child, right, that is, like, perpetually optimistic. I, I was, I'm wondering how old she is. Yeah, I mean, I would guess that she's a teenager. 12 or, 12 or 13, probably. Yeah, because she remembers her brother. Right. And well, we don't know, and, and we don't said, know how long ago he died. No, we just know he, that at the time of them arriving, that he would have been eighteen. Right. And so, if I were a betting man, I would guess that she's somewhere in the ballpark of like twelve to fourteen. Yeah, that that would be my guess too. But it's just like her job is to. I feel like in this episode is to make us fans again. And to make Soji a fan, mm-hmm. and she, a real believer. And she's just she's so it's so refreshing. And to me, I know some people I've seen somewhere have likened this relationship between Kestra and Soji to uh, Data and the young boy, the young Baku boy from Insurrection. I've seen yeah, that. Okay, but yeah. for me, this yeah. feels more like a. Naomi Wildman and Seven of Nine. Like their relationship. Naomi Wildman is just the kid full of enthusiasm and everything about this life is so great. And then she's trying to help Seven of Nine 
you know, understand how great she sees everything. And I just, I just think that this relationship here reminds me of that. Okay, I'm, I'm totally forgetting it right now, so please bail me out, Eric. There's an episode of Next Gen where Data saves a young boy, and his mother died, so he decides he wants to be yeah, an android. Is that called hero worship? Yes, that's what yeah. it is. That, that kind of gave me that vibe okay. a okay. little bit. Okay, all right, sure. With... With this whole like, where where Soji is more or less the boy and Kestra is Data, so kind of like flipping it a little bit. Yeah. Okay. But but oh. I just like like Kestra takes on this role of the little sister here, and she just wants to be so supportive of her big sister, and. There's that moment, I know we're skipping around here a lot in this, there's that moment where it's the next morning or whatever, and they're about to leave, and Dodge is... Why do I keep saying Dodge? Like, Soji. 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 Let's say it. Let's say it together. Soji. Soji. She's, she's still in bed. She's just waking up, and Kestra's sitting there on the floor, and she says, I don't really understand everything that's happening. But I know something bad has happened to you. And something bad happened to me. It's not the same, but something bad happened to me. And what helped me get through it was my mom and dad. And I know you don't have a mom and dad, but you have Picard. And Soji's like, but I don't have Picard. Like, I don't trust him. And and Kest's like, but you could. If you will just trust him, he will be there for you and he will help you get through this. Yeah. Oh my god, I Beautiful love that one. scene. She is like wise beyond her years. Yeah. Like for real. For real. Like well it seems like both of the Riker children were wise beyond their years. And I'm totally okay. I'm totally with that. okay with that too, yeah. When my daughter gets a little older, I'm totally gonna cosplay old man Riker. I'm gonna I'm gonna cosplay Chef Riker, and I'm gonna have her cosplay, you know, the Vivine Wild Girl. With the red paint and everything, it's totally gonna happen. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> I mean, the fact that I have a daughter and Riker has a daughter makes it that much sweeter. Right? Now. Yeah, I love it. that's cool. So, gosh, like we've we've jumped around so much, and it's okay. But like, there's, there's still so much more to so talk much... about here. True story. Like... True story. I mean, there's like we we talked about the embrace we talked about Thaddeus we talked we've talked now about Kestra we briefly talked about the counseling session in the tomato and, garden and i'm just going to say this um i never really thought counselor troy was all that effective of a counselor like if you watch some of i mean and you can maybe like have some experience in this now every time we saw a counseling scene from her i never really thought that she gave great advice I always thought that Guinan was such a better like counselor and a, like a better listening ear than than Deanna Troy ever was, and I never really felt like Picard got any actionable intelligence or information from Deanna Troy on the bridge. She's like, "Oh, I'm sensing fear," but like, okay, but there was no real information from there. But this scene, this scene in this tomato garden with Soji. This is the best scene Counselor Troy ever had. Like, 
we did our best of Picard, if we were doing our best of Deanna Troy, this would be number one for me easily. Not even, not even yeah. close. This is the best moment she's ever had. I think her second best moment was in Generations after um, a family member's death. Yeah. Okay. Sure. But yeah, I mean, this was like a very, very good moment for her. At, you know, flexing her counselor skills. I mean, the thing, the thing, people don't—I I don't want to say all people, but generally speaking—that people don't understand about counseling is that it's not about me giving advice. It's not about any counselor giving advice. Our job is to hold the mirror up and let you figure it out yourself. We are there to reflect stuff, reflect content, reflect feeling, reflect meaning, you know, using those counseling skills to get people to solve it themselves. If I'm just, I, I, I tell this to my counseling students, I'm like, what do you want to do? Do you want to be a mirror or do you want to be a chalkboard? Counseling's not about you. If you're going to make it about you, then you're a chalkboard because you're just going to write stuff up on the board and that's what they're going to do and it's going to be about, more about you than it is about them. So hold the mirror up, reflect stuff, and let them f figure it out themselves. So I think, you know, with with how things were in Next Gen with with Counselor Troy, great character. I loved her in the in the run of the the show and the movies, but she's like not really doing counseling. I mean, the person that's really doing counseling is Guinan. Like, if you really compare them, they're Guinan's the one that's actually doing the counseling on the ship. Because she's listening. That's what counseling is Well, she's about. an she's an Alorian so too. They're a race of listeners. Well, I mean, yeah, they're, they're yeah, but like, no, I, I totally your like point. With, I get it. So, like, you really see her like really do the counseling in generations, and certainly and then here also, in and this then also garden. at the end of Chain of Command Part Two. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for that reminder. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Like. And then, and then at the very end of it, Picard kind of interrupts them, and really like, kind of like out of character. I feel like, with what he says right there, and he says, "Yeah, oh yeah, this is all just some elaborate deception, and how could I ever be lying to you?" And Soji doesn't take it very well, and she huffs and puffs. Rightfully yeah, so. Yeah, rightfully so. And then she huffs and puffs off, and Deanna steps up and says, "You had that coming." And Riker's like, whoa, Imzadi, whoa. He's like, no, no, you had that coming. This girl has been through a trauma, and you aren't even trying to see what she's been through. You're just trying to tell her, this is my experience of what's happening, kind of like what you were just talking about, right? Telling it from me and not trying to be the mirror. Right. Wow, okay, that's good. That's really good. That even makes that scene even better. Now I just heard what you said. Man, I, I have a few good things to say every right. once in a while. Yeah, you got some good insights over here. Some good insights. <laughs> so, anyway, so we're we're at this point. We're we're making pizza, and actually, we're we're at a lot of different points. But Riker and and Picard have this fun little conversation by the pizza oven. And talking about, you know, like what's going on, not wanting other people to be on the up and up with what's going on because of Picard yeah. arrogance. And, and he says, if and, only ignorance of the problems was enough to keep it at bay. What a, mm -hmm. what a good line. You know, I think if anyone else would have said that, I would have been really pissed. Honestly. 
But the fact that it came from Riker, it lands so much better because there's, what do you say, 35 years of yeah. history that they yeah. got together? So he's he's earned the right. He's made those deposits into the relationship to be able to say those those kind of things that other people wouldn't be able to in the same context, in the same situation. That's a perfectly valid point, yes. Go on, please continue. So, like, the fact that he's like, okay, so this is going on, so I'm guessing Romulans. This is also going on, let me guess, Tal Shiar. And I would notice that head tilt anywhere. She's got some data yeah. in her. How am I doing yeah. so far? <laughs> yeah. And, and it's interesting, um, on the ready room, um, Brent Spiner is there, and he's talking about, and Will Wheaton asked this question, and he says, did did uh, Issa come to you and, like, try and talk with mannerisms through you? And he, Brent Spiner's like, no, no, she really didn't. But, but what she did is she just watched the show. She was a big fan of the show, and she, like, nailed it perfectly. Yeah, and I was like, well, that's cool that you, like, really took the time to, like, nail some such, like, a small thing, too, in the grand scheme. If it wasn't there, like, okay, but the fact that she took the time to do this and it was, like, so perfect and Riker just picked up on it was really cool. Yeah, yeah. 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 I don't even know what else to say to that. Yeah, it's it's just good stuff. So, so let's. So, so there's we got to talk about the dinner table scene because I've said it before. I'll say it again. I love when Star Trek, and this is a this is a a key characteristic of Star Trek for me, is the the senior yeah. staff sitting around the conference table in the observation lounge, talking through the situation, talking through their plan strategies, and then coming up with. A coherent plan that all of them set to work on and I know Deanna says hey pretend our dinner table is the ready room and not the observation lounge but so what this scene I can we please get more people sitting around conference tables talking through the situation and I know every time I say that people are like you just want to see people sitting around talking yes yes I want yes. to see that okay there is not one scene in Star Trek Discovery, I don't think, in two seasons, where the characters are sitting around a conference table in an observation lounge just talking through the situation. The closest that you really get to that in Discovery is with Anson Mount's Captain Pike whenever he's first coming yeah. on board. And you might and you might get like a couple one or two people in in his ready room talking, but that's really yeah. about it from what I can recall. But there's that scene. They're finally they're finally sitting around this table and Picard has this really great speech here um, where he's like, listen to the timber of my voice. Feel the beating of my heart. Look at my eyes. Know that you can trust me. And Soji goes, well, I can tell that you don't think you're lying, but that doesn't mean I trust you. I've known this man for 35 years. Stop, Will. Stop, Will. Stop. We want... I've been... When Commander Data died, I retreated from the world. Right? And I was just waiting to die. But that was wrong of me to do. And I'm getting this quote totally wrong here, where I got the first part right. But he's like, I retreated to my... Into my own little world, and I left everything behind, and it was wrong of me to do. 
and I need to come out of this. I need to get back into the world. Commander Data was a good friend of mine, right? And he sacrificed his life to save me, and I owe it to him to help you because you were created from him and you were created from out of love from him. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. I really love that speech right there. And it, it, it wasn't so much of a speech, right? Because he's not, like, trying to project himself. He's just really somber in that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we really get more of the old Picard coming coming back out yeah. to play. And then, and then, um, uh, Will Riker says, uh, maybe you should contact Starfleet. <laughs> and you know that's the last thing Picard is ever going to do, right? <laughs> He's like, oh, maybe yeah. you should contact Starfleet. And he says, perhaps. But when he says perhaps, he really means no chance in hell. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, I, I just want to like throw in like a little bit, a little funny thing that I saw, not related to to this episode or anything, but you know, in in the what is it, the second episode where he goes into uh, Starfleet HQ to talk to Clancy, and he's like, "I need a ship," and all this other stuff, and then she says, "The sheer effing hubris." I saw a, car, a little meme that said, "Great, the USS sheer effing hubris." <laughs> <laughs> How yeah, great would yeah, that that's been? the name of your ship. Well, um, there's a there's a moment in this episode where where Riker mentions his house has shields because they've had some problems with the Kazinti. Star Trek: that's, The Animated that's Series. Not everyone, where the Kazinti came from. They're in there, but they're, they're in, in there. there. They're in the animated. But I mean, the, the yeah. Kazinti were were created by an author named Larry Niven science fiction author who is famous for writing the ring world series which the ring world is what inspired halo the game okay and hmm. um in the in ring world there's this one of the main characters of the book ring world is a kazinti but in the the book ring world the name of the ship that they use to get to the ring is called the lying bastard <laughs> and like the the main character Louis Wu names it the lying bastard because like he's like like none of this stuff is supposed to exist and you told me nothing like this was possible right so this is like you just straight up lied to me this whole time and so he comes up with that name and by you just saying oh the ship is called the USS sheer effing hubris just reminded me of that and it ties in because there's a mention of of Larry Niven and the Kazinti here <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> so okay it it legitimately took me three times before I got that name right so like when I first heard him like the Zindi I'm like okay and then like the second time I, I watched it I still heard the Zindi I'm like that can't be right there's no way that's right and then like the third time I heard yeah, Kazinti because like, they, they say it so it fast subtitles. 
I don't I don't like but to read. I, I mean, when I, I watch television. everything with subtitles, so I don't even like notice them. But yeah, turn the subtitles on. You can, you you can wife, if man. you don't just Ganging ignore them me. if you don't want to read them. It's not like you, but you they're they're, right they're small there. and on the bottom. Unless you're watching Disney Plus, then they're Are on they the top really? for some reason. Like some some shows. I mean, that's how it was at the beginning. Maybe they that, fixed the patch to where that would be it's annoying. actually on the bottom now. Subtitles at the top. I could. I don't think I could True get story. used to that. Well, you got used to reading your television, so yeah, you probably I'm, get used I'm not to even it. Read it. I'm not even reading it. It's just I don't even notice subtitles. Like when I watch movies in foreign language, like I don't even really notice that I'm reading it because it's just so so ingrained in me now. It's like that repetition, and the brain just learns it. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's. I know we have. Just a little bit more to talk about with the Rikers. Okay. So let's finish this tabletop scene. Let's kind of put a pin in the Rikers. Let's talk about the La Serena and then finish with the and Rikers. How's that sound? The artifact? Uh, we don't okay. have to talk so about So you want to go to the La Serena right now? Okay. Let's, we can. No, let's, or do let's, you want to talk well, about the board? We have to talk about both of them. We can just. We can we can knock them both out here pretty quickly. I feel like. Okay, so La Serena. Let's talk about that real quick. So they're they're they've escaped. They're they're jumping around. Austin Powers is following them, and they don't know why Austin Powers continues to follow them or anything like that. But Agnes does. Um, Agnes sure as heck does because she follow she uh she ate a piece of triangle cake. She ch- um. Yep. Back while she was eating sushi she at the, the Daystrom bill. Institute. She sure did. And here's the thing. That that just the way that it was done, I'm like, are you trying to get her high or something? But it was the way that that um that Rafi was talking to to Agnes about like Auntie Rafi's gonna take real. Yeah, good I thought care she was gonna you. get her like high as well. Like what are you gonna do Here, have some of my snake weed. Yeah. Are you going to put something in, like, cake? I mean, like, what are you going to do? Are you going to, like, get her tripping yeah. on something? Yeah, like, Auntie Rafi will take care of you, whatever you need. She's like, is it cake? And I feel like Rafi kind of looked over at the moment and was like, that's not what I meant. Like, I, like, like to me, there's, when she looked over at her, the thought in her mind was, no, I'm going to get you high, but all you want is cake? Okay, I'll just give you some cake. Yeah, and, yeah, honey, it's cake. Better than cake. It's cake. Yeah, <laughs> and then like no, but it was actual cake. It, it, yeah, and she's had like three giant cheesecake factory giant, size yeah, pieces like, of cake with chocolate milk on with all of them. It looked like yeah, yeah, right. Which would totally make anyone throw up. I think. Which makes me think of like the Liberty Medical Supply guy. That's like diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or have you have you ever seen that that it's a meme. And it's supposed to be like a kid's test in like kid's math test in like elementary school. And it says like Steve has 65 candy bars and he eats 40 of them. What does Steve have now? And the kid wrote diabetes. <laughs> Steve has diabetes. I have seen that before. Yeah. <laughs> 
we are not making fun of of diabetes or anything. No, that's not what we're doing. We're not doing that at all. I can't stop laughing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. We are horrible, horrible people, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, wow. And then, and then, like, Agnes has her little breakdown again, right? How many breakdowns and does she have to have? Is there, like, a quota that has to be met in each episode or something for her to have, like, the quivering chin and, like, the freaky hands? Like, is there, like, a checklist with that? Like, I don't know, but I am so over Dr. Agnes Gerardi. Like, season two of Star Trek Picard, can we just, like, get rid of her? Like, what purpose does she really serve right here? Like, hopefully there's some, like, ultimate payout, and I think there's going to be something, obviously, or else we wouldn't have gotten this flashback scene at the beginning. Maybe, maybe, you know, Agnes and Austin Powers can hook up and they can go you know, into the great beyond. Yeah, and just season two, just... They're going to the galactic core. They're going to go give God a spaceship. Yes, just go away and don't come back because I am so over both of those characters. Pretty much. Yeah, like... Like, she's not middling and annoying anymore like she was before. She's just tiresome. Mm Mm-hmm. And she's, she's still got, like, that Tilly vibe about her, too. I, I'm even past the Tilly vibe. I, this is, like, worse than Tilly. Because, like I said, she's, like, not annoying anymore. She's... I'm just so t- tired of her. Well, there we go. And... And, and like, I am kind of over Rafi as well. Like, I really liked Rafi in at the, the, the very last clip of Episode 2... And then what we see of her in episode three, I really liked Rafi then. I thought she was going to be like my favorite new character, but I'm over Rafi because she really doesn't have anything to do here. Yeah. So I said this before that Chris Rios has been my favorite of the Lost Serena crew, apart from Picard. Mm-hmm. And he continues yeah. to be. Yeah, but even he was like, had ba- barely anything to do this episode. Smashes a hologram screen or holographic screen, and you know does a cool little slidey slide down the staircase. Yeah, so so there's that scene when he goes into the the sick bay to talk with Agnes, and he's like, "Listen, I think I know how this person is following us. What if Rafi is being tracked?" And I totally thought that he was like using subterfuge here because he he didn't actually think it was Rafi but he was trying to get Agnes to just come out and admit that it was her and she basically does admit that it's her like she's like it's not Rafi but then like he goes back up to the bridge and he says to Rafi I think I know how to shake this guy but you're not gonna like it does it involve me does it involve falling out of an airlock and he's like maybe or I hope not is what he says and like so then those two scenes almost seem to contradict each other because I felt like in the one scene he thought it was Agnes and he was trying to like get her to admit it which she does she flat out does admit I mean she doesn't come out and say it in so many words but she basically admits that it is her and then up on the bridge he thinks it's he thinks it's Rafi and he he really does seem to think so those two scenes like I don't know what did you think I 
I thought that he got it too whenever he was down in sickbay talking to her, like away from Rafi. I thought, I thought he got it. And I think that what happens in these, you know, moments following this is only going to increase his paranoia that it is in fact Rafi because Rafi was the one that was feeding her and getting her like these giant pieces of velvet cake, a red velvet cake and chocolate milk and stuff like that and you know she puked and then now she or she is in a coma type of thing so i really think that's going to add to it and there's going to it's going to create more butthole drama between rios and or and uh, and uh, rafi well well rios has to know that she replicated poison which by the way like like we talked about that episode death wish earlier in this um that Voyager episode. In that episode, um, basically a Q character wants to become human so he can die, but like he take he injects himself with a poison, but they flat out say replicators cannot like create this type of toxin. Like they're totally programmed to not be allowed to do that. But here she just nonchalantly, hey, I'm gonna replicate some poison and I'm gonna take it. And Chris Rios and the EMH probably have to be—they've got to be able to know that that she created this toxin and took it herself, right? I mean, there has to be a log, right? Like some kind. Right, there, there has to be a log. Like if there's—if we can look at at like the holodeck, for example, and see like what the last program or last few programs were that were ran and and done and processed by the computer, surely we can do that using either the main computer on the La Serena or using some kind of medical log, you know, in the sick bay on the La Serena. And, and there has to be like, again, like a voice pattern for who or what ordered this thing to be replicated. But that's just me using, you know, logic and logic and reasoning. Yeah. And, uh, I don't, I, I don't, who knows if that they'll, they'll actually do that and go that far to, to uncover it. I don't know. Who knows? I didn't like the preview though, and I don't. And for those of you that don't watch the previews, um, I just I didn't like what they included in the preview for next week's episode. Okay. Well, we don't have to talk about that. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to. I'm assuming you saw it because it sounds like you you talked a little bit about the previews earlier. Well, I mean, it's hard. It comes on literally like that. You know, the show ends and it comes right there. There's not any time in between. Yeah. So let's let's ignore that. And you guys, if you did watch it, great. If you didn't watch it, just you'll see what happens next episode, I guess, or what might happen next episode, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Um, is that it on the last arena? That was pretty much it. I mean, they were trying to just yeah. get away and. There was cake eating, there was a confrontation, and then there was a coma. That was really it for the okay. La Serena guys. That was it, yep. Nothing much happening there. Um, so, Artifact, Borg Cube, Hugh, and company. Hugh et al. Okay, so we talked about what happened with Hugh at the beginning, and it was this this heartbreaking moment where all of these XBs were murdered in front of him. Yeah. But then, like... You see this resolve from Hugh after that, and he says, I'm going to take back this cube from these, these Romulans, and they're never going to hurt me or any of these people that I care about anymore. 
That sounds like insurrection. Yeah. Did you really think you weren't being watched? Oh, Nerissa. Oh, Cersei yeah. Lannister. Yeah. And then um, Elnor pulls out his sword and he's going to deflect the disruptor blast with his sword. With his lightsaber? Right? With his lightsaber, yeah. <laughs> Can I just say, I really like that. I'm like, okay. We, we've learned from the great professor the great archaeologist that you don't bring a sword to a gunfight indiana jones taught us that so very well <laughs> yeah okay and you know you just you just don't do that i don't care how good of a co-op malat you are you don't bring a sword to a gunfight even if you can do a little spinny spin flippy flip stabby stab slashy slash to people it ain't gonna do that much good okay and I love the fact that Nerissa just starts going pew 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 pew, and he's doing his dodging and, and hiding. He's playing hide and seek with her, basically. I love it. And right. it, it doesn't do any good. And I oh, love the God. fact that it, that that was in there. Right, right. Whereas before we talked about it, there was in the episode where we introduced Elnor. Absolute he, candor, yeah. He, yeah, he, he. Did his little flippy slip, spinny spin, stabby stab, cut the guy's head off. Yep. And then Picard gives a big speech. And then the guy pulls out his disruptor. And, like, Nerissa here is like, no big speech. Just pull out your weapons and start shooting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I liked it. I like Nerissa. I'm like, there you go. That's intelligent fighting. Don't make a big speech. Yeah, but, but, then, but, then, but then on a dime, she almost flips to not being intelligent. And she says, this is not how a Jat Vash and a Co-op Malat fight. And they, like, put away their swords. Or she put, he puts away his sword and she puts away her weapon. And they start fist fighting. That didn't seem very smart. Not, not so much, no. But did you notice that um, she has, like, this tiny little, like, bat dagger, right? Like, this little, like, throwing star that she's got. That, yeah. that was, or, or just the dagger in general that she used in that part of the scene was if it wasn't the same it was highly inspired by the knife that Shinzon used in Nemesis. I don't know if you noticed that at all. I did not notice that. No. Yeah. Okay. So, if you if you look at I think it's this this scene, if you compare that to the scene where Shinzon in Nemesis is taking his dagger and he's drawing blood, they look almost identical, if not identical. Okay, cool. I'll have to go back and look for that the next time I watch Nemesis. Yeah, fun little Easter egg for, for folks going back to that movie. Okay. Might be a while before I watch Nemesis again. <laughs> <laughs> but, so then, anyway, here comes this scene. They're, they're fist fighting, and she pulls out her little, her little dagger thing, and then she flicks one across the screen right into Hugh's neck. And Hugh dies. Now listen, I don't mind Hugh being killed, right? Like I said, like death can't be just a plot point, it has to mean something. And I think Hugh dying, Hugh being killed, could can mean something. But the way in which it happened here was totally flippant and and uncalled for. Agreed. Right? I mean, it's just like 
totally flippant. Like, oh, I'm just gonna throw a knife across you and hit you in the neck. And I felt like Hugh deserved better than this. Especially after what we've seen from Hugh in the couple episodes that we have here in this series. You know, I'm hoping against hope that he's not dead, even though, I mean, he is. Right, I I mean, I just think he deserves so much better than this. I'd be, it'd be great if he just got thrown into like a Borg regeneration cube, or port or whatever, and then he's back and he's, you know, okay. Just Or just get him like a sarcophagus and just throw him in a sarcophagus. And, oh, throw him in a sarcophagus? I mean, we got we got the Stargate in the, in the Borg Queen room. I mean, why not, right? Right, sure, why not? Um, <laughs> yeah, but like I said it at the top, like, death has to mean something, and if your character dies, like, don't bring him back, because if you just bring him back in a somewhat unnecessary and strange way, it makes the events that happened meaningless yeah okay and i feel like hugh's death should mean something i'm just wondering what that meaning is going to be if we see it in episode eight nine or ten like what's that going to really mean in the grand scheme of things for like the xbs for even seven of nine which we saw you know a couple a couple weeks ago um like yeah, I'm wondering, I'm wondering if like the revolt. Or not, I'm sorry, I'm getting out of my own thought. I'm wondering if the death of Hugh is going to initiate a revolt on the artifact uh, between the XBs and the Romulans. That is an interesting idea, and um, yeah, that's an interesting idea. I um, it would be okay to see that happen. I'm not sure. But, but I, you're right. I'm wondering what the point of Hugh's death is. And hopefully we will, we will get something of that in Season 1 here. And it won't have to carry over to Season 2. Yeah, I mean, even with, like, if this, if this revolt does happen, it, I think it would be completely justified that this paternal figure, you know, this, you know Hugh being the director of the, the Reclamation Project, he's been this paternal figure for all the XBs. You know, he's been, you know integral in giving them their identity and a name and things like that back and as much as the the cube itself has been a place of trauma and pain for them it's also become their new home it's been a place where they can call home where they can't go back to their old home and you know in losing that parent figure it just it makes sense to you know, defend your house. I mean, we, we hear that in football all the time. I'm not a football fan, but you know, defend this house. Like you see, like sport sporting companies using that as like taglines. So, it that would make sense to me. But I'm, I'll leave that alone until we see how it officially plays out. But just one thought that I have for sure. Right. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting idea. Okay. So, I think we're we're well, almost well. well yeah. There's well, the dog just, tag thing. Th- there's the, like, we see Eleanor, you know, Hugh's just been killed, and he's on the run. And, um, you know, I've been very down on Eleanor as a character, right? I think the, like, when we introduced him, we didn't need a whole episode to do that. And I was like, then the very next episode, you know, Stardust City Rag, he basically had nothing to do. And then he just comes in very little at the end of the last episode. And so I'm not really high on the character. And I watched the the Ready Room episode with Evan Evagora on it. And he was talking and he said that 
Elnor has this confidence about him that's totally unearned, right? If you, if I'm remembering that interview correctly, and I think you see that confidence eroding here at the end, and he's like, he he's on the run, and you can see that he's like really afraid, right? You see this look on his face that, he, like, I'm. Maybe I'm not going to get out of this. Maybe all the training and everything that I've been through has not prepared me for this situation. And I'm all alone, behind enemy lines, everyone is searching for me, and I'm truly afraid. This is his own dang fault, though. I, I, I mean, I'll give him a pass on the first one, but the second one, it's his own dang fault. He could have gone through that portal and gone to Nepenthe... Okay, that's the pass I'm going to give him. But the second time, when the Lost Serena is like, Hey, we got to go, kid. And he's like, No, I'm going to stay. I don't want this to happen again to any anyone else. Well, I mean, I think... I think that's this, like... Uh, cocksure bravery. And I don't know any better that he has. This attitude that he has because he's been the ultimate badass his entire life and everything he's wanted to do he was able to do and he doesn't know any different and so I'm kind of okay with that yeah yeah I mean I don't know I just I just think he's dumb I mean I'm, I'm with the crew <laughs> I'm with the crew like everyone here thinks you're crazy man but brave Ah. Oh. See, okay, I, I already used, like, a different reference, but this, like, when that phrase happened, just humor me for a second, Eric. Okay. That that line right there, this whole, like, everyone thinks you're crazy, but brave, took me back to the Lion King. And this is okay. why... It's, and this is I, why love, I love me some Lion King. It's my favorite Disney movie, hands down. Okay? Not, not mine, but... That's okay. Go on, go on. So, Simba and Nala decide that they're going to go to this elephant graveyard. And and they end up getting way in over their head at the elephant graveyard. Yes, they and, do. And Zazu finds out about it, tells Mufasa. Mufasa storms in, does his thing, messes with the hyenas, tells Nala to get, get with the gittens, and then gives his son Simba a very stern talking to. And part of the talking to that he gives Simba is, you know, I don't go looking for trouble. I'm butchering it a little bit, but I don't go looking for trouble to prove that I'm brave and courageous. And I feel like that's what he's doing. Like Elnor is having a very Simba moment in this where he's trying to prove that he's brave and courageous. So he goes looking for trouble instead of using wisdom to get the heck out of Dodge. It doesn't make sense for him to remain that second time. So that's why I'm saying it's a very Simba Lion King type of moment for, for Elnor with what's happening on the Borg artifact, on the artifact. I love that comparison. I think that is perfect. I could not have said that better, and that is really great. Um, yeah, definitely. God, Mufasa is such a good character, isn't he? Straight up, man. Like, Mufasa. Say it Ooh. again. Mufasa. <laughs> Mufasa, again. Mufasa, Mufasa, Mufasa. 
<laughs> oh yeah wow oh that you're so you're so right like you can give him a pass for the first time like i have the chance to go through the portal but then the second time hey kid we're gonna beam you out we gotta get out of here but he doesn't take it and yeah you're right and, and I'm not saying that to change your mind or, or even change the listener's mind. It's just that's been that was my experience with watching that second that second thing for Elnor. So, but I mean, it, like I said, just it, that stood out to me, and like Lion King was the first thing that came to mind. So, okay, but yeah, anyway. and then and then he finds these Fenris Rangers tags, which I'm assuming those are what Seven of Nine left for Picard a couple episodes ago how they ended up hanging in this one place because Elnor's not back in like the queen cell where they started so like it seems very convenient that he just ended up in the same place that these tags were were hanging but whatever it's like convenient things happen all the time yeah unless for some reason she had you know either Seven or any of the Fenris Rangers had had been any kind of contact with Hugh and could have left a dog tag for him, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, I mean, we have no idea what Seven of Nine's history in the the gap between when we last saw her and now is. If she has any interaction with Hugh or this Borg reclamation project, we don't know, right? And I'm hoping that we get those answers because, like, the episode when she was here i said i don't know if she's coming back at all but clearly she's coming back surprise right she's coming back guess who's back back again seven seven's back tell a friend yeah and so i'll be interested to see how seven of nine reacts going back to a board cube right because Last week was the first time we saw Picard back on a Borg cube in a long time, but we did see Seven of Nine go back to a Borg cube multiple times after her deassimilation. But now that there's been some time passed, has she ever been to the artifact? Does she know anything about what's going on there? And what is her reaction going to be to seeing these XBs and the fact that they were basically murdered? Right. Right, because she's got like this trauma with, you know, her surrogate son, and now she's going to see this stuff, potentially this stuff going on with what just happened with Nerissa, Hugh, and the other XBs that were in that lineup. Yeah, we. I mean, we saw her turn into like the action hero Terminator at the end of the, the episode. Right? Does she go on uh, some kind of another killing rampage here, or does Quite she possibly. just? Does she just try to find Eleanor and get the hell out of Dodge? I'm hoping that she tries to get Eleanor and just, you know, gets the heck out of Dodge. You know, maybe right. she'll be Mufasa. Yeah, but but maybe she takes part in this theoretical Borg uprising or XB uprising that you've mentioned. That's that's very possible. That's possible, right? And there's a scene in the preview which just kind of creeps me out a little bit with what might happen again very matrix style so okay but anyway leave that one alone yeah we'll leave that alone 
Are we basically done with, with the artifact? I think that's it on the artifact. Okay. okay so, so, I guess it's kind of sort of back to Nepenthe, and then that kind of rounds it out, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, that'll, that'll finish it up. So you were already talking about, like, with uh, Kestra, like, I don't know what happened to you, Soji, but um, you could have him, he could have you, but I don't, but you could, type of thing. And then, you know, they're, they're wrapping all the stuff up, and um, Riker and Picard are walking through the woods drinking their coffee and tea Earl Grey hot, I'm guessing. And uh, you get, like, this very meta kind of thing going on with him describing his new crew. Did you get that impression as well? Yeah, it was it was interesting because Picard says they've got more baggage than you ever had, but Picard is really the one carrying most of the baggage here. Yeah, he's the bellhop for crying out loud. Yeah, yeah like he's got all of this baggage and for him to just, but then he does say, but who am I to talk? So yeah. he, he seems like he realizes that he's got this baggage as well. I like the fact that, um, you know, he's, he's describing them as, as very motley and like all this drama, you know, like we were just saying, like all this drama, uh, they have more drama than you've ever had basically ever since we left uh, Earth orbit. And with that being meta, it just, it did feel like he was describing kind of how we as the audience might see, feel, and experience this new crew. Like, comparing it to, like, this optimistic, happy-go-lucky, campy kind of vibe with with Star Trek of the 90s to this more gritty, drama-filled, you know, cuss-word-dropping, you know, vice-using team now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that, I think that's that's interesting. So, I mean, just that hug, dude, at the very end between Riker, Troy, and Picard, I was having a really bad day. Uh, and when, it, just, it just, like, cheered you up? like I wanted to be in that hug, man. Like, I was oh having... Oh, yeah, please, can I just, like... <laughs> can, I, can I get some get, get in on that action, please? Yeah, no. And for me, I totally get... I, I love that, too. But for me, the better hug was Kestra and Soji. Yeah. Kester comes out and he she gives her that compass, that the broken compass and said, "You just have to pretend it works." And there's got to be some kind of allegory there with like Soji is a broken person and this compass is broken. Those there has to be something that where those two things go together and I I haven't quite pieced that all together in my mind yet. Do you think that and this might just be like something in my head, but do you think that maybe the compass wasn't meant to work on Nepenthe? And that with her being, you know, a 50-50 synth, that part of like the metal and magnets or whatever that's in her body, it'll cause it to work. And that part of Picard's compass, like his own moral compass has not been working, but with having her, that his moral compass is starting to work again. Just like her having this hardware, it'll start working again. Oh, so like, the compass is a symbol for the moral compass, huh? That's an I, interesting, that's an interesting thought, sure. But, um, 
a compass on Earth is designed to, you know, align itself with our magnetic field. Exactly. But if you're going to have a compass on a different planet, well, that planet has probably a different magnetic field. So you couldn't just transport a compass from Earth to some other planet. Right. Right. I'm, I'm trying to think. There's some science fiction show or movie that I watched, and if, if this strikes you, where there's a character who's trying to use a compass to, like, figure out where he's going, and somebody says to him, why would you even expect that compass to work here, right? You took that compass from Earth, and this is a different planet. And maybe that's on a Stargate? I don't know. Does that Does that sound familiar at all to you? Not immediately, Eric. No. Like, ah, I wish I could remember that. And it just came to mind when we were talking about this scene. Well, if anyone listening knows what Eric's talking about, let us know. Right. Like, I'm thinking it might be, like, Stargate Universe at the very beginning in the pilot episode. Right? Where they're on that desert planet looking for the water. I didn't watch too much Universe because it just rubbed me the wrong way, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, I'll have to think about it too. Yeah, and if anybody out there listening knows what I'm talking about and is like, they're listening to us and they're screaming into their into their room at us. Like, you idiots, this is what it is. It's from Men in Black, the animated series. Duh. Yeah, yeah, duh, right? <laughs> <laughs> I No, I do that myself when I'm listening to yeah. podcasts, like when I know something, when the people on there are talking and they, they don't get it right and I yeah. scream at them to correct them. And they don't hear you. And they don't hear me, ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good grief. Yeah. But there's this scene here. I know we just talked about the hug and the final goodbye, but where Picard and Riker go out to the dock. They're sitting on the dock by the water. And Picard says to Riker, do you ever think about going back out there? And he says... Well, technically I am on active reserve, but it would take a hell of a situation to get me back out there. And for me, the whole point of that is to set us up for Will Riker is coming back. This is not all we're going to see of him. Yeah, it, it, when I heard that, I'm like, okay, there's still a chance. Like <laughs> like from Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> so what you're saying, there's a chance. So yeah, like I really think that we're going to see Will Riker again. I would love the mess out of it. And if it was, you know, if it was the Titan, if it was, I don't know, the Enterprise F, that'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah, but I think we're going to see him again. But if it doesn't, well, okay. Like, I think that, that for me, I've said this. I'll, I'll continue to say it. And I've, I've said that a bunch of times. That data was used perfectly in episode one. Um... I felt like Seven of Nine was kind of forced into the storyline where she was in that first episode. Yeah. I feel like Hugh was used perfectly. And I feel like even though this doesn't, like, this episode doesn't move the plot forward a lot. And so some people, I've read this some places um, on some reviews, people are saying, well, this is just forcing Will Indiana into this story and it doesn't make sense for the plot and I'm like maybe it doesn't help the plot but they were used perfectly here and they were absolutely essential to telling this story because we see Picard 
he needs people that care about him to reinforce who he's been and what he needs to do moving forward. Yeah. And I feel like if we had gotten them any earlier than this, it wouldn't have been earned. But the fact that we're getting them this late after what he's been through, I think is perfect. This is the perfect opportunity to bring these characters into the show. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, it's no secret that I love I love me some some Riker and, and Troy. And I wish they were in every episode, but I if they would have been it in every single episode, it just would have been TNG season eight. And and it wouldn't have had the same emotional payoff um, like we got in this particular episode with them. And and I'm I'm okay with that. If we get if we get them in another episode or two this season, cool. If we don't see them again until next season or the third, the fourth, the sixteenth, that's cool too. Yeah. If but we never see him again, that's fine too. Yeah. If you go and watch everyone, go and watch this episode of the Ready Room. Like this is a fantastic episode of the Ready Room. And to your point about what you were saying is this couldn't just be TNG season eight. There's a, Brent Spiner says that Patrick Stewart took the whole group out to dinner. Jonathan Frakes wasn't there, but it was like he took Brent Spiner, Marina Sirtis, Lavar Burton. Michael Dorn. Michael Dorn. And he said, listen, I'm going to be doing this new show where I'm going to be playing Picard. None of you are going to be in it because this has to be a different show. And I just wanted to tell you that personally. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, he has said in interviews too, both at like Star Trek conventions and just interviews in general, that the plan for him is to have the original next-gen crew or just the next-generation crew to have each of them have made an appearance in the show before it goes off the air. Before the series finale, basically. So, okay, yeah, sure. So, I mean, I'd be interested to see Worf and what he's doing as captain. You know, I'd love to see what Wesley's doing. I know I'm probably in the minority on well, that, but Wes Wesley joined the Traveler and is off on some higher plane adventures. But he later went on. He was actually in a Starfleet uniform at the wedding of uh, Riker and Troy. Yeah, yeah. It's not in the original version, right? The original theatrical version, but right. like version that I have on Blu-ray. Like he's in there. He doesn't say anything, but you can clearly see him sitting off to the side. Yeah. And, I mean, Guinan's already going to be coming back for season two. Yeah. We know that oh. from a view, the interview on The View. We know that for a fact. That's been confirmed. Yeah. So, anyways, great episode. Great um, episode. And where, where are we at with the rating on this one, Eric? Okay. So, um, I'm going to tease something right here, this idea that I've been <laughs> thinking about. And I'm not going to, like, lay out this whole thought that I have right now. I'm going to wait till the season is over to see how it all wraps up. We've got three more episodes. Um, and then we're going to do a, a retrospective of the whole season a couple weeks after when we've had some distance. And I think I'm going to say my whole thoughts on this idea that I have to improve the show then. But I mentioned that because it relates to this episode. This episode is called Nepenthe. Right, and most of the scenes take place on Nepenthe, this planet. Yeah. And 
if this episode only took place on Nepenthe, you take every single scene not on Nepenthe out, every single artifact scene, every single Lost Arena scene, and you take that out of this episode, okay? And you just have the Nepenthe. You know, this episode is 58 minutes long. If you took out all those other scenes, it would probably be right around your 45 minutes. Yeah. Right? A traditional length episode. Okay? And if you did that, then this episode would almost be identical to that episode Family. Sure. Yeah. Right? Where where in Family, there's nothing... No, There's no problem. There's no mission. There's nothing we have to accomplish. It's just characters being characters and characters coming to terms with the things that have happened to them and making choices about who they want to be and what they're going to do moving forward. Okay, and I love that episode, Family. Like, I think it was, like, number five on my best of Picard moments, and you had it really high on your list, too. I did, yeah. Right? Um, so if this episode was just Nepenthe, I would give this a nine and a half. Like, I'm not... I'm. Like this episode would be one of the best episodes, one of the best episodes of Star Trek ever, if it was just Nepenthe. Mm-hmm. These other scenes only serve to hurt this episode because it is such a strange and awkward dichotomy that they create. We have these really soft, quiet, poignant moments with these beloved characters, and then we have these odd action scenes that happen on the artifact and these awkward annoying moments that happen on the Las Arena and when you put all them together for me it just doesn't work okay so Nepenthe nine and a half one of the best episodes ever all the other stuff five and a half put it all put it all together and I'm gonna give this episode an eight and a half because most of the stuff take takes place on Nepenthe and that other stuff drags it down but not so much where I'm still going to give this an eight and a half okay okay so yeah like the the other stuff felt very very clunky to me with the Lost Serena and with the artifact and things like that um, everything about about you know what you're saying on Nepenthe I love the mess out of it and that might be some bias because it's it's the Rikers for crying out loud, and I love me some Will and Will and Deanna, and now Kestra. I love Kestra. I love Kestra. I love Kestra. Let's do a Kestra show. I, it'd be it'd be really cool to see her, you know, become an ensign on a starship someday. That'd be cool. yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. So I don't know, like. It was definitely, I feel like this episode was better than The Impossible Box, and The Impossible Box was a great episode. Yes, it was. And I know that I originally gave it a high rating last week, and then I lowered it to, I think, a nine and a quarter. That sounds right. But this episode was better than last week. I don't know... I can't give it a nine and a half as much as I'd love to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel kind of weird giving it a nine and a quarter 
because of what I gave the impossible box. So, like, well, do I give like, it a nine, nine point three, nine point four? Do I give it a nine? Do I give it a one? <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no justification for that. I, <laughs> I, I actually saw an IMDb review where somebody gave this episode a one, and I was like, "What are they smoking? You're just a, you're just a stupid troll, and you just need to GTFO." <laughs> <laughs> Right? Yeah. So, God, like, you're right. Like, with with the Lost Serene and the Borg, like, the Borg Cube. I'm sorry, the Artifact, not the Borg Cube. God, this is, like, really hard for me. All right, man. You just got to do it. Just blurt it out. Um... 9.35. There we go. Okay, good. Good. <laughs> we got that over with. You did it. <laughs> just say it. Don't you feel better now that you just said it? It was very cathartic for me. Thank you, Eric, for giving okay. me space and the safety right. to do that. All right. You're welcome. Well, that's it, gang. I don't think we have anything else to say. This has been our longest one ever. This has been our longest one ever, but I think it's been our best one ever. And um, it really, I said this at the end of last week. It, you're, you can have a better conversation when you have better things to talk about. Yeah. Right? And these last two episodes have definitely been the best two episodes. And and when you're a cook, it helps to have better ingredients. You can cook better. So yeah. Riker learned that the hard way whenever he picked up those nasty eggs on the Starbase and he had some really unappealing eggs to make for his friends on the Enterprise. And uh, anyways, he's got some good tomatoes and basil and stuff, so... And we got some good stuff to, to cook with ourselves, so there we go. Yeah, right. And I'm hoping that this is... I hope we're staying on this trajectory of just getting better and better with these last three episodes. Yeah. I really am. This show has improved so much, right? Like, it was, you know, good first three episodes, took a little little dip in quality, but it's just, like, gotten so much better these last two episodes, and I really hope we're going to continue on this path. Yeah. Yeah, and if we get something better than this, whoa boy. Yeah, it's going to be on like Donkey Kong, man. Yeah. We're going to be going so fast, we're going to turn into lizards. It's going to be crazy. <laughs> wow, <laughs> got some threshold in there. <laughs> yeah, I got to get got to get my uh, my Star Trek checks, you know what I'm saying? From <laughs> from CBS Viacom, got to get them. All right. Well, <clears throat> there we are. We're going to call it for today. Um here at the here at the station, us talking about um, episode seven of Star Trek: Picard Nepenthe. Uh, what do you guys think of the episode? What what were your thoughts? How did you experience it? Um, how would you rate it? What were some of your favorite moments? Uh, did you cry whenever you saw the hug or any of the hugs? Do you wish you were being hugged by them? Because Lord knows I do, and I'm sure I know Eric does too yes, as well. Please, can I get in on this group hug? I totally want that group hug. <laughs> And, uh, I would be that I, awkward guy. You know, there's always, like, in a group hug, there's, like, one person that's, like, the hug isn't big enough for that one extra person. Yeah, yeah. And he's just kind of, like, awkwardly there on the outside. <laughs> that would be me. <laughs> well, share your thoughts with us. Um, you know, interact with us on the group. And um, we'll, we'll hopefully be able to create a conversation and talk about it or whatever. And uh, go from there. Now... Make sure that you're following us on all the things on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're all at TRTVPod. Um, we're also 
we also have a page and a group with Facebook, so make sure you join the community. Uh, we have some random stuff going on in there from time to time. It's great. Love it. Um, but remember, not only can you support the show by like listening to engage and in the main show and things like that, but you can also support financially. If you like what you hear and you want to help us keep the lights on here at the station, like with you know hosting and and things like that, like with with the server and stuff like that, you can do that um, on Patreon, uh, Patreon.com/slash These Are the Voyages. Different tiers, and every little bit goes directly back to the show to help improve it and keep the lights on. Like I said, now again, if you want to interact with us uh, apart from social media, make sure that you open hailing frequencies. You can do that by entering in coordinates trtvpod at gmail.com. You can also send us a voice-only transmission to eight one seven seven five two four seven five seven. Remember, there's a three-minute time limit, and your comments may be used on a future episode of Engage, These Are the Voyages, or TRTV News. Now, finally, if you want to send us a letter or something like that, um, you know, send us a data pad or whatever it might be, um, you can do that. Make sure it gets to the Lone Star Station by entering in P.O. Box 2455 Azel, Texas, 76098. That's A-Z-L-E. And um, that's basically it. Those are some ways that you can get in contact with us. So... Uh, guys, thank you for uh, taking away our sorrow, taking away our pain, as we um, have talked about this seventh episode. And um, as you go about your day, just remember that we hope that you will always boldly go and make it so.